Well, hello everyone and welcome to our podcast at the Rectory. I'm Anne and I'm currently a professor at the University of Bowling Green. Hello, my name is Dr. Catherine Ranham, heretofore to be referred to as Katie, and I am an adjunct professor at the University of Cincinnati and Xavier University in the realms of history. And we're going to bring lots of wonderful guests to talk about issues in the world, things that we're seeing. And we think that our friends are pretty fantastic and you are going to absolutely love them. We're connected by our beautiful little blue and gray house in Cincinnati, Ohio, named The Rectory. Maybe someday you'll show up to an Act The Rectory party in real life. But for now, you'll be our wonderful listeners. Yay. There he is, the man himself. I have arrived. <laughs> It's not the second coming. It is the first coming of Marty. That's right. It's the end of a work day today. Yeah. Are you beat? I was just, Ann and I were just comparing notes on how beat we are. Uh, I didn't think I was beat, but I am feeling like I'm beat right now. But last thing I got to do, and then I'm at dinner, but I'll put something intelligent together. It'll be okay. (laughs) We're not worried. We're not worried. Two of my students yesterday were looking at my slides and they were like, um, Professor Random, like your dates are going back in time. Like you said, the Salem witch trials were from 1692 to 1663. And I was like, yeah, that's not true. <laughs> that doesn't <laughs> work. should be a nine. <laughs> I'm so tired. Well, Anne and everybody, I met Marty actually digitally for the first time when I interviewed him for our church's brand new a preaching team. About two and a half years ago, we had never talked in person and everything was <laughs> over um, over Zoom. Uh-huh. And that was our very first time that we met. But Marty and I have been on the preaching team at our church together and yet separately for two and a half years. <laughs> and Marty, you are the president of um, Impact Campus Ministries. Mm-hmm. Amongst the many, I, the many projects that you do, including leading your own podcast, which has thousands upon thousands of listeners, the Bayma Discipleship Podcast, which has been going on for how many years now, Marty? Since uh, 2016 is when we launched it. Oh, my gosh. I think I'm now up to the dates in December of 2019, and I am waiting on pins and needles, not just for the next episode of I'm in Romans right now, but for the moment when you guys realize that the pandemic has hit. I feel like I'm reliving. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I don't think we I don't think we really because because we knew at that point the weird time warp that everybody was like, we had a conversation about how. We just attempt to acknowledge current events very little mm, and yeah. because we knew so many people were behind. So it would not make any sense when they got there. And yeah, so we because we had recorded because when I moved, I moved in June of 2020 and we had stopped recording like six. So we actually weren't recording when the pandemic started. We didn't start until I got here and we were almost a year into the pandemic by the time we started recording again. And we didn't want anybody to feel that in the, cause I knew I was moving. So we recorded like nine months of episodes over the course of two or three months and um, then just posted them through the, 
through the pandemic. And a lot of people were like, man, it was just really nice to go to somewhere that just wasn't talking about it. And it was just the same experience. And I was like, you're welcome. (laughs) Wow. That was some crazy foresight, Marty. I would not have thought about that at all. Yeah. I just knew I wasn't going to be able to record while I was moving. And I'm, I am an overextended planner on the Myers-Briggs, like really dysfunctional when it comes to planning. So (laughs) where are you on the Myers-Briggs? Oh, I'm an INTJ. Very much so. You're an INTJ, and are you an eight on the Enneagram? Uh, very much so, yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm an so. INTJ, but a five uh, on the yeah, Enneagram. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. But I go to eight when I have very big emotions. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I'm an ENFP <laughs> and a nine. <laughs> I'm just glad that you exist, Anne. That's... I don't understand. I don't understand people like you, but I'm really glad that you're you're around. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> is kind of everyone's mom, including my mom, and we're like ten years apart in age, so it's very that. handy for me. I love that, Marty. You were so so kind to agree to come on the podcast, and you're a big get not only because of your own, I mean, just prolific success as a podcaster yourself, but because I couldn't think of anyone that I wanted to talk to more about this season's theme, which is tikkun olam uh, and and repairing the world. Because you are a Jesus-following Jew. Is that my correct? And that's how you identify? Yeah, that's the typical phrase, uh, a Jewish follower of Jesus. Yep. And you have trained under Jewish rabbis in both Israel and Turkey for over a decade. Yeah, yeah, I had a, I had, I had essentially one teacher that took me to both places, and then I had a lot of teachers that that teacher then connected me to, and just a really robust bibliography that I have spent the last seventeen years pouring over. But despite the fact that you called yourself like an overextended planner, this was like not the plan when you went into your formal education, was it? No, let's not talk about how much my overextended planning is accurate. <laughs> it, it never it never works. It's just the world. It's the water I swim in, but it's never been effective. <laughs> <laughs> what was the plan when you when you were like formulating you know, uh, a formal college education, what were you thinking was going to be the trajectory for you? Well, when I was in high school, having to make those decisions, I was pretty set on going into to law. I was going to go into pre-law. I wanted to do poli-sci, poli- probably do some political science. I wanted to get into politics. I had a football scholarship. It was kind of a weird football scholarship because I had really good test scores. So the uh, Ivy League schools can't give athletic scholarships. So they're always looking for people that test really high that can also play the sport. So I had a scholarship to go play at Dartmouth and it was going to work out really well with my plan. And, and then I was, I don't know, I was a senior in high school. I'd been going through my own spiritual awakening, if you'll call it that. And I'd just been praying that God would let, you know, if he had any other plans other than the ones I had, let me know. And just felt like, I don't have a long list of stories in my life where I feel like God spoke to me. But that's one of a one of a few times um, where I feel like God just told me I was headed to ministry, and I didn't wasn't much more than that. But I very clearly felt that impression. So, kind of bagged on all the other plans and went to Bible college and met my wife, and there you go. Rest is history. Wait, so if you went to Bible college, how did you become a Jewish follower of Jesus? Yeah, I was aware of my Jewish heritage growing up, but I wasn't. I was raised in a very typical evangelical fundamentalist upbringing. 
Um, so we had the typical evangelical understanding that I think was pretty standard throughout evangelicalism 40 years ago, which was Jesus came. So why would anybody need to be Jewish like that? That, you know, there's no relevance to your. So like I knew my father, which is the side of the family where all my Jewish heritage is the Solomon side, Shlomo. Um, that side is where, uh, my family's very, very strict LDS. Uh, we have a very strong Mormon background because of that. We had our family genealog genealogical records. So I had done like family projects in the past when I was in junior high and high school where you had to like, look at your family heritage and where did you come from? And, and so I knew by our, our genealogy takes us back to 980 AD, 968 AD. Something Good like that. grief. Yeah. It's incredible. And, um, so I knew of our Jewish heritage. I, I knew our family crest had a shofar and a palm frond and I knew like they were, yeah. And I knew our name doesn't come out of Western Europe. And like, I, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, we had Jewish roots, but I didn't. And that was something I kind of woke up to later after I had gotten a lot of my theological training, after I had looked at a lot of new perspective on Paul scholarship, um, which probably doesn't mean anything. <laughs> there's a lot in there in those few sentences. But when I finally realized like, oh, no, there's a relationship between Jew and Gentile in this New Testament reality, I still didn't connect the dots. Um, I was actually a voice that when you teach this stuff, it's very trendy for people to be like, oh, I want to be Jewish. I'd like to eat kosher and I want to do the holidays. And 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 I was really adamant, like, no, the New Testament says the beauty of the church is that the Jew is a Jew and a Gentile is a Gentile and we come together. Um, mm -hmm. So the, the Gentile shouldn't be Jewish and the Jew shouldn't be a Gentile. We, we come together in the church. Um, and that was my like, that was my trumpet call. Like I, I was, and then one day my teacher connected the dots and said, well, wait a minute, you've got Jewish heritage. Someday you're going to have a student that's going to be listening to you. And they're going to say, if that's what you understand theologically, why don't you eat kosher? And you need to know what you're going to tell them. And I just went, uh, I, I just never self-reflected on that, what that meant for my own personal journey. So that was, that was that weird piece. I am a weird, like I'm a walking theological conundrum like that. <laughs> there's no, there's no doubt about that. I, I am odd. I try to hold that with grace and never projected obnoxiously, but I've got a lot of odd pieces to my story. So was that a, was that like a sudden change for you, Marty, when you were, um, when your teacher sort of proposed that to you, or was that then a series of steps when you, uh, changed, changed the way you were practicing kind of daily life to conform with Kashrut and that sort of thing? Yeah. When I came home from that trip, that was my last Turkey trip with Ray, who was my teacher. And um, I, I came home and I had this really awkward conversation with my wife. We had just had our, our daughter. She was less than a year old. And I, I said, hey, you know how I have some Jewish heritage? She said, yeah. And you know how I teach this? Like, my wife is not a theological person. She really doesn't care about the academia. She really, that's not her jam. And she was like, yeah, 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 I get it. And I'm like, okay, but what about putting like those two things when they come together? And she was like, oh, so we spent a whole year. And we read through Torah three times together. Whoa. We just kind of read through it all, looking for as many laws as we could find. We wrote them all down. And then we read through it again. We talked about, like, what difference would this make if we were Torah observant? And then we we did it one more time, just read through it and and just continued to reflect on the impact it would have on our family. And we were done. I said, I, I need you to make that decision because you didn't sign up for this. 
Mm-hmm. And you, you know, if you, if you, what do you, what do you think you and the kids should do? And then I'll, I'll figure out what that means for me. And, and she, she prayed on it for three months or so and came back and said, I think that's what we should do. And, and man, since then I've learned all kinds of weird things and nuances. And had I known, I don't know what we would have necessarily done differently. What I can say is that throughout the whole journey, we've just tried to be true to what we understand about the text. And I can promise you, I understand a lot more now than I did then. And I will understand (laughs) so much more 10 years from now than I do today. And I will constantly just try to steward what I know and try to live consistently to what I think the scriptures are teaching us. So it's weird. The whole thing's been weird and I'm full of insecurities, but I've been okay. Jesus is good. The great, the gospel is a good thing. Marty, I just have to say, this is so encouraging. We have a lot of like um, younger listeners who are like in their undergrad and there's a certain narrative of like, well, if you graduate or if you get that job or if you do this thing, then you're done, right? You've figured everything out. And I love that you've had this trajectory of almost constant growth and change and revelation that just keeps coming. And even what you said just then of, I'll know 10, like, I'll know more 10 years from now. It's like, we don't have that mindset a lot in like Western American culture. It's all kind of like achieved so that I can like stop. Um, So I just love that you're here sharing. So even though you're full of insecurities, it's very encouraging to hear that. Yeah, you don't have it all together. Yeah, I feel like the church ought to be the place where we give people the most confidence in that insecure space. And it's be it's typically the opposite. Typically in our church spaces, we try to project like an assurance, a mm-hmm. confidence. We have all the answers. Obviously, I was raised in a church that taught me all about apologetics and we know everything there is to know. And one of the things we work really hard in our ministry and our podcast to do is to just be like, oh, oh, we we don't know anything. Like we know enough to follow Jesus and to trust God and his story. But the amount of things that we don't know. Yeah. It changes, and hopefully it actually, there's this weird thing that happens where it's so disorienting, but then if you work through that deconstruction, that disorientation, and then embrace it, nothing's more freeing than mm-hmm. being like, well, I'm confident of this and this and this, and that's enough. Yep. But there's a whole lot of things I'm not confident in, and that's okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think our young people, as a campus minister myself, nothing's yeah. more important I mean, I think you've articulated something that is is broken in a lot of faith communities and um, in particular sort of in the in the space that Anne and you and I sort of occupy on a regular basis. But I'm curious, is this sort of marriage in your life of a Western Christian heritage and a actually I'm fascinated to know where in the 900s your family tree was on the globe as well, if you don't mind telling us, but along with this very Eastern Jewish tradition, how do they marry up to speak to you about repairing the world, an idea of tikkun olam? Yeah. Um, well, let me answer that easy question first. My my family spent about 900 years at the same address. Like we were in oh. Cornwall, England for almost a millennium. Wow. Yeah. So our family's actually looking to take a vacation next summer. And I want to spend three or four days just in Cornwall. Um, just to, I don't even know what I'm going to do, but. Uh-huh. Go see Port Isaac to, where they shot Doc yeah. Martin. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, uh, that's, that's the answer to your easy question. I 
I love to talk about the Eastern world, the Eastern perspective, the Hebraic point of view. I think a lot of people associate that with our hermeneutic and the thing. And it's true. That would be fair. But honestly, I'm as Western, like I was raised in the same evangelical. And for me, it was, I keep saying the same thing over it, but for me, the flavor and the brand was fundamental. Like my mom, I think she thought Dr. James Dobson was the fourth member of the Trinity. Like, like that was that focus on the family. That was yep. the, that was the experience I had. So I'm as Western as the next guy. And my, my, I think I, I think people probably give me way too much credit when it comes mm-hmm. to the, I just know about the Eastern hermeneutic and the Eastern world. I know, I know enough to know I'm, I've been taught some of the wrong questions. I have some of the wrong knee jerk assumptions and that helps me ask better questions and those kind of things. But, but I, I'm just as well. So when it comes to like, Tikkun Olam, if I'm honest, I didn't come to that through, uh, even through the Hebraic lens. I came through that through typical Western theological systematic theology. I came to that through N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright was blowing our minds with kingdom theology at the turn of the, I mean, he'd been doing it for a while, but it was starting to hit what I would call like typical mainstream. Normal folks like me were coming to learn about kingdom theology around the turn of the 2000s. And we're, we're reading N.T. Wright, redefine what theology and the kingdom of God is and heaven. And if kingdom theology is true, then this isn't about getting out of here some glad morning when this life is or if, if kingdom theology is the way we're framing it, this is about me physically participating in the work of God. Now, in the midst of that, because of all the obvious crossover, I bump into this concept of tikkun olam in the Jewish world. And I go, oh my goodness, which is really what N.T. Wright was trying to explain to all of us just through, you know, our own Western lenses in a way that we would appreciate it. But but yeah, to understand and then to find it all the way through the Midrash. And I mean, the rabbis would say, you know, centuries ago, the rabbis would say, you know, you know, engage in the mitzvot, do the good deeds, because in doing so, you're planting the very trees of Eden. Mm. Um, like they had this concept to see it in the New Testament when Peter says, you know, uh, doing the good deeds and in so doing, speed up the coming of Christ. Like that messes with your your typical eschatology. So you don't hear many people preach on that, but Peter has a very Pharisaical theology. I mean that in a good way. He has a theology that Judaism is very used to, which is we are partnering. We are in a dynamic partnership with God, and he is partnering with us every day. Eschatology is this open thing because we are partnering with God to put the world back together. And when we partner with God more and more and more, what we're doing is speeding up the coming of Christ. We're speeding up the return of the the renewal of all things, the age to come, olam haba. And that's very tikkun olam. I don't think they use that. That phrase comes up later in Judaism. So it's not necessarily a phrase that Peter would have used, but it's exactly the same theology that Peter is speaking, speaking of and speaking about. So yeah, to have that language and to learn it, I was like, man, what a beautiful, what a beautiful conversation in a call. I'm, I have chills because it's like, and I like feel I have tears in my eyes. It's so opposite of how I was raised in the basically waiting for Armageddon to happen and keeping track of all the terrible things and all the bad things and all the prophetic, like falling apart of the world. Like that's the thing. And then it, it just, that totally reshapes 
how you live your how you live your life if you're thinking of putting the world back together and bringing planting the trees of Eden. My goodness. So just like dang. Yeah, it's it's probably the well in my mind. I, I think a lot of people would say it's like the fundamental shift of our theological era, like the whole wrestling match and evangelicalism between N.T. Wright on one side and John Piper on the other, and not to critique oh. one or whatever about, but there's like this systematic theology worldview, and then there's this more contextual hermeneutic kingdom theology, and it's a radical shift. Like a lot of people bump into it and they're like, oh, they, but they can work together. And really, when you get down to it, it's like we're talking about things that are being built on radically different foundations. And I don't know if that makes one wrong, but they're really two radically different worldviews. One is about what you're not. I'm quoting a teacher here, but one is about what you're not. And one is about what you are. Mm. One is about the removal of sin. The other is about the restoration of creation's goodness. One is about disembodied evacuation. The other one is about physical, physical participation. Mm. Um, like those, those are two radically different worldviews. You find yourself in radically different places there. And as it was framed to me, the one comes from simply starting the story a little bit too late. Like mm. if you what start you the mean? story and if you start the story in Genesis three, and then typically you end the story right about revelation 20, you miss the very, very essential key important bookends, which is Genesis one and two and revelation 21 and 22, because as the Bible begins, there is no other place, which I always love to just stop because it's like, that's a brain burner for us mm -hmm. in Genesis one. There is no other place. There's not heaven and earth. It's just earth. It's just creation. Hmm. It's Genesis 3 that starts to tear these things asunder. But the story starts with everything here together, everything in perfect union and harmony. The story ends with heaven coming down, not us going up, but heaven hmm. coming down. So everything is here when the story begins. Everything is here when the story ends. So what we're doing in the middle is we're just trying to like engage this work of bringing this separation that was never supposed to be. We're just working at restoring that, repairing that, pulling these two worlds. A Bible project did a great video on this where they talked about heaven and earth and these two overlapping circles like a Venn diagram. What we're doing is we're trying to pull this Venn diagram every single day closer and closer together. And eventually God just kicks out all the evil because it's the only thing left to be done because heaven and earth have become the same thing. I've heard you talk before about um, it really hitting this theme of uh, God invites us to be partners uh, with God in doing this work. And I think just now as you were speaking, it sort of hit me differently. And I was thinking about when parents or teachers of mine have actually meaningfully included me in the creation of something good versus like uh I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, just hold a light while the other person does the work, you know, like <laughs> under a sink or under the hood of a car, you know, it's um, that's boring. And you don't feel like you've actually done anything. You've just like been a lackey or a Batman if we were talking about the first world war. But if um, when I've had like when my dad actually taught me to change the spark plugs plugs in his classic 54 Chevy Bel Air. And he still reminds me of that. Do you remember when we 
replaced the spark plugs or when in grad school, a teacher started bringing me into their research and scholarship. And then my name, you know, ends up in a, in a footnote or in the thank yous. And I can look and see where I know where my work is in this thing we did together. That is a wildly different experience and tells me about a wildly different God than one who is sitting far away and observing and monitoring and taking notes you know, on what I'm doing and whether or not I'm filling in all the blanks correctly. Yeah, no doubt. I, I can remember one of my favorite stories that I had when I was way too young to know any of this stuff we're talking about. Like I kind of knew and I thought I knew, but I really didn't. And But I had this great moment. I was teaching this class for a church and it was designed for kind of new believers, like people that were new to the faith. And uh, I was teaching this class. We had about six or seven people in there, a um, couple I think I think there was one married couple. Everybody else was either divorced or widowed. Um, and there was this mom, this single mom. She had two children. One of them had just gotten their driver's license. And she was a teacher at, at the local elementary school. And so I said, okay, listen, here's a here's a hypothetical. Your son who just got his driver's license, he because we were we were wrestling with evil in the world. What do you do with brokenness in the world? What do you, you know? And I said, your son, who just got his driver's license, goes to the hardware store tonight, buys like a whole flat of spray paint, drives down to your elementary school where you work over overnight and just just graffitis up, just destroys the place. Now, in this hypothetical world, I said, you as the mom, you have endless resources. You have a bank account. You are Jeff Bezos. You can snap your fingers and by Monday have a better school than the one that was already there. You can have a better school built by Monday. I said, do you, you, you build a school? Without hesitation, she said, absolutely not. And I said, you didn't even hesitate. Why not? And she said, because I'm going to grab, what are you going to do? If you're not going to build a school, what are you going to do? She said, I'm going to grab my son by the ear and I'm going to throw him in the passenger seat of that car. And we're going to take some primer and some paint and some soap and some buckets. And we're going to go down to that school and we're going to start cleaning up the mess that he made. And I said, why do we inherently know that? Because there's something redemptive in the partnership and the work. Like there's something, and it wasn't even that the God character is responsible for it, but there's a partnership engaged in putting the world back together. Now that metaphor breaks down on some level. I get that, but I loved that, that picture and her immediate maternal response. There was no hesitation. She immediately was like, absolutely not. Cause I care about my son. And yeah. I know that there's like, I could fix the world, but I would lose my son in the process. And so I see this God going well, well, I could fix the world. Like that's actually not that difficult for me, but I may lose all of you. So I would rather have you join me in the redemption and we'll get through this whole thing together. And I've always found that to be a really cool, really cool metaphor for me. I love your stories, Marty. I'm, I'm thinking of people who maybe have really, I don't know, like bad experiences with religion and see how the world can kind of devolve and shake out and religion can be a part of the breaking of the world. Can you just reflect on like your experience? Like why God, like why ministry? Why God? And now that you've had so much time, is it like thinking of the students in your like ministry campus ministries that would come by and be like, what is this? What is this about? Why would we do this? What, what does it have to offer? to the world 
I don't know, and to ourselves. I feel like you're touching on it, but so many people are like, maybe I can get that some other way. Like it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be religion. Well, I'd love to hear what it is. Um, and, and oftentimes I don't mean that in a patronizing way. Like sometimes people will, will have an answer to that question. Here's what it is. But when they're done describing it, I'm like, that just pretty much sounded like God. Hmm. Like that just sounded like we're just having a semantics issue. Cause what you just described was resurrection, hope, um, something far more transcendent than my religious experience. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I've very rarely found good answers to that that really don't feel like I'm. we're just all talking about the same thing. For me, the box that I've called home is a religious box. It's a particular faith expression. It's, it's, it's Christianity in that language. I found it to be helpful. And I don't know if I've found the same thing for me elsewhere. But yeah, why why religion? Why God? Because because of hope, because of resurrection, because I need to believe that there is something. You can call it a. You can. <laughs> I'm fine if it's a crutch, but I I, and I don't. It, it's not a. It's real. Like we we've all tapped into this stuff. Like call it what you want, and I realize the religion stuff and the theology can just get in the way. But whatever that, we've tapped into something that's like I don't know what that is, but it's bigger than the the soil and the dirt and the blood. There is something infusing all of this with whatever you want to call it, energy, power, something more transcendent than just mere atoms bumping against one another. And even people that are in love with science talk about science that like we all know this, like we it's fundamentally in our bones. And for me, I find the language of the Christian faith expression helpful. It gives me handles to have a conversation. I have hated its execution most mm. of the time, but I, I have I have loved the ability to talk about things. I love having a conversation about the Christ. Mm. Um, it, they're just things that I find. And yes, the box usually gets in the way. The system can get in the way. The language can get in the way. All those things, I'm comfortable jettisoning, like getting rid of those things very quickly in a conversation if they're not helpful for us. But I usually find we're all kind of talking about the same stuff for me. Again, when you get to a place where you're like, man, how little do I know? I think it also, one of the things that that does to me, I I start to expect to find God everywhere else. Mm. Like there's so little that I know. Of course, I I would expect to find God over here. Like my old Christian paradigm told me that God was only to be found within my box, within my stream, within our boundaries, under our label, under our sign that has Jesus and blinking lights. And now my life experience and theology itself and just the Bible itself, the same Bible they pounded all the time, teaches me that God's always found outside those boxes. He's working through a pagan witch named Balaam. He's hanging out at a Samaritan woman's well. He's healing a demoniac and not bringing him back to synagogue on the other side of the lake. He, Like God's apparently at work. So of course I would expect to find him everywhere else. So, and I would expect that people are bumping up. And that's a very Jewish idea too. Like Jews aren't a very proselytizing people because they've always assumed that God is at work with all the Gentile nations. They would assume that. we They don't assume all the Gentiles are going to burn in hell. They assume that God's, we, they, they have their covenant, their experience. We assume that God's doing something with all of you too. And and so I've learned some of that from their own perspective and, and brought that with me like, oh, well, I would assume that God's doing something with you. How have you experienced this, this thing, this God, this transcendent hope and goodness and thing? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, words, words. I really don't think God's getting hung up on words. I, I don't. I just think there's so many people that are going to get to the other side of this, whatever this thing is, 
Yeah. And they're going to meet Jesus and not know his name because I don't think he's going to be wearing a T-shirt with a name tag. And they're going to be like, oh, you're the thing that I've been looking for my whole life. And I don't know if it'll be like, yeah, I'm the Christian Jesus, everybody. I think he'll just be like, I'm just so glad you're here. Like, I don't know. I'm probably way too, like, open and weird. But golly, it's uh, I just think. I think we I think most of us, actually, I actually think very, very few of us have not tapped into that thing. Eternity is set in the hearts of men. Even when you even when you find the, the most committed atheist, when you really listen to their atheism, you're like, man, you're actually tapping into something quite divine. We just have a semantics thing going on right now. I don't know. I just find it. I find it in the heart of every human being. And I love to call it Jesus because I think that's who that is. But I don't know. Well, because you also do so much work like on the Bay Mob podcast about scripture, about yeah. like, you know, the stuff that has been used to build some walls, you know, and really how do you work with the semantics of redefining maybe some of these things that have been used to clobber people and instead used to open it up? but still spending time talking about Peter and Paul, you know, like not, not abandoning scripture to do that opening up work. Is that part of your, you know, Hebraic heritage, you know, is that part of the journey Mm -hmm. or is, I don't know, how do you do Mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. Yes. I think that comes from, uh, I don't have to work at shaping the language because actually the Bible does all that work for us. It's just Mm -hmm. what we've been taught to do with it. So the Hebraic wisdom tradition has already done this work for me 1500 years ago. Like they've already framed up the conversation. They've already had these conversations that feel unbelievably, I don't mean this in a political way, but progressive. Like it was, it was ahead of its time. Like so many times when we read the Bible, we feel like it's primitive and barbaric when we read it through the lens of Western. And we're always trying to like catch up. Like we're always trying to get our systematic theology to like catch up. And we're always about 20 steps behind. But when you read these ancient uh, wisdom traditions, they're not behind. They were way ahead and the, and the wisdom, like the language may need to be like adjusted to fit, but the wisdom that it's talking about is still way ahead. And it is always way ahead of the conversation. And so that's been actually super. And I find the same thing in Christian mysticism Mm. in the Jewish world. I find it in, in, in the Hebraic wisdom tradition, like that wisdom perspective that makes its way into the Midrash and then forms the interpretation and the commentary through which the lens through which you see the Bible. Like I found it in other places, but I won't admit it because everybody will freak out. But like, I found it around all kinds of corners, hiding behind all kinds of doors. Um, Yeah. But it's, it's not, The problem often is what we've done with the Bible, Mm -hmm. bad readings of the Bible like that. That's the, not the Bible. The Bible is not the problem. The Bible is, oh my goodness. The Bible is so brilliant. The the Bible is bottomless. The wisdom in it is bought. It is not barbaric. It's not primitive. And that's another thing. Like you ask, like, why, why Christianity? Why God? Why? Because I haven't found anything like the scriptures. And that's not a knock against other beautiful like there's all kinds of wisdom you could find in places like the Quran or like there's all kinds of wisdom in those places. I have still yet to find anything like the Bible. That might just be because I'm biased and that's where all my education lies. But that book is absolutely freaking brilliant. The problem is bad readings of that Bible, mm. not not the Bible itself. And But that's a challenge. Like we're always tempted to read it and control it and box it up. And bad readings of the Bible are always going to be the thing that we have to be guarding against 
checking. Murphy, how do we get good readings of the Bible? Do you have resources? Can you direct us? Are there links? How do you? How he do has you none of those, that? Anne. Don't even ask. He has none of them. Look at his bookshelf. Hey, I'm looking them. at this library behind you. <laughs> that's just the, that's the small library. I got three. That's the small one. Well, that's part of what we want to do in the podcast is lead people through that journey from Genesis to Revelation. First five sessions. We always tell people start in episode zero. It's It'll be a little dated. Even I've grown. My goodness. The amount that I've grown in 2016, I would redo some of that journey. The things we've been through as a culture, George Floyd. I mean, it's the stuff we've seen and the and the things we've navigated. I listen to some of my stuff from 2016, and I'm like, ooh. But that's but that but that I mean, that's the time capsule. That that is what it is. Um, but we always tell people start in episode zero, and throughout that journey, pay attention to the show notes because we're going to link a million resources. Half of them are not going to be your jam. Half of them will be. Pick the ones that are. Lean into it start your journey, all those kinds of things. I happen to know of a guy who's writing a book that's supposed to be released on February 7th. Um, and it's going to be all about this idea. Ooh. It's called Asking Better Questions of the Bible, Ooh. a guide for the wounded, the wary, and the longing for more released by Nav Press. And um, it's it's supposed to, it, the goal is that we've written a chapter on basically every piece of genre of the Bible. So there's a chapter on Torah. There's a chapter on on uh, wisdom literature. There's a chapter on history. There's a chapter on prophets. Why is when you're reading the Bible, you need to know which portion of the library you're reading because they're all different. You don't read Torah the same way you read the Psalms. Mm -hmm. You don't read the Psalms the same way you read the Gospels. And Paul's letters are unique. And Revelation is not the same thing. So when you're reading each one of these portions of the biblical library, you got to know what questions to ask. Because if you start asking the right questions, you get better answers. And one of the things that I say in the book over and over again is when we ask questions the bible isn't asking we always get the wrong answer doesn't mean they're bad questions it just means they're not the biblical answers because they're not the biblical questions so we want to learn to ask the questions that the author is is asking and talking about and answering so so there are some resources and i that book like i'm not the expert so that book is basically designed to do the same thing as the podcast at the end of every chapter we're going to give here's a list of resources that we've used to make this chapter Here's a list of resources where you could dive even deeper, and every okay. chapter will have a whole list of of things to to, to do. But yeah. yeah, Marty, it strikes me that that um, I was at a birthday party Sunday night, so of course we were talking about uh, theology, and we were talking about the um, the billboards around UC. And are you hip to this that say, no. and they're for like the healthcare system and the research system at, at University of Cincinnati, and it, they say, "In science lives hope," and mm -hmm. I. I'm always kind of slapped in the face by that, partly because I know things about the history of the UC medical system that would speak, would say otherwise, but also <laughs> because it seems to me that we're asking the wrong questions of science. I agree with you. This is not a knock at science. It's trying to make it do something that it's not supposed to do. Um, and when you ask bad questions, this is what the, uh, you know, enlightenment and the 17th century mm -hmm, philosophical mm -hmm. movements in Europe were all about is about asking better questions mm -hmm. and um that billboard just really kind of tweaks my nose when i when i see it because mm -hmm. again i think it's it's asking those bad questions but just in another arena mm. yeah there's such a razor a razor's edge in that space because you're right it's such a fine line between 
when you're asking too much of science or asking science to answer questions, there are, there are questions that science and there are questions that only science actually should be answering. Uh, we've also experienced that a lot. And I can also appreciate where that billboard is trying to speak into out of the last couple of years, because there are some places where science is really the only buddy that the only people that should be talking. <laughs> um, and so, but yes, when you pull that outside, however, there's also this fine line where on the other side of that, you realize, well, science is really just one aspect of this thing that God has given us to steward. And then when you see science vocationally through this lens of stewardship, like I'm just I'm just ordering and stewarding God's creation. Mm-hmm. And science is simply the way of like paying attention and writing down what's going on and then using that to order. And like science will be like some of the most efficient ways to order and steward creation, but it's keeping everything in its proper place. So it's when that, it's when that, created hierarchy gets out of whack and we forget where science falls in either direction. Either it's not high enough or it's too high on this created hierarchy of order. It it doesn't work. In the same way that we, when we use faith to do things that faith isn't supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. when we start wandering around and telling people, well, your depression really is just about Whoa, okay, hold on. It's probably time to go look at that billboard. Let's go sit and stare at that billboard for a while because there's probably some things that science needs to to tell us because mm-hmm. I'm probably not just going to pray my anxiety away, um, those kind of things. So anyway. If it did, I think the most, the prayingest people are the anxious. And so if it did, they would know first. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Sure things. And there's actually some great truth, some great wisdom and great truth in that contemplative mm-hmm. reality too, for sure. So the well just always gets deeper and wider and more nuanced and complex the deeper you die. <laughs> I was working on slides today for my class tomorrow. And as I often have to do history and dirty laundry, I have to remember dates and I, so I Google them. And so I was, I was Googling, you know, what are the dates of the first great awakening? Also because scholars disagree uh, about like when it, you know, when does this end? Well, the, who knows? Right. Um, Do they just merge into the two great awakenings? Sure. Why not? Um, But I saw the national Catholic register, which is a really interesting religious publication um, said, you know, we've had these great awakenings. Are we entering the great slumbering right now? And is this even a bad thing? And they were saying about uh, how the in the pandemic, so many people stopped attending regular religious services. It's not just Christians. It's certainly not just Protestants. Because people just got off their schedule and it's just not, it's just not their priority anymore. And they were, I didn't read the whole article, but they were asking is this really even a bad thing? Might this be a staging ground for something new to happen in faith? And I think they were specifically asking about American faith. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, how has how have you been thinking about the changes that the pandemic hath wrought? I do feel like we had we had moments that I was really excited about during the pandemic. That sounds funny, but what I mean by that is everything got shut down and every pastor that I'm friends with and I'm friends with a lot, we're all like, why have we been trying to build these churches and we're, we need to get back to discipleship. And there was like this three month period where everybody was going to like 
throw off all of these facility-centric programming and and Sunday morning center of gravities. And I was like, oh my goodness, this could be like the greatest opportunity. We're all going to return to like a more, oh, because we do. We like put all of this gravity like around this thing that we do in building these empires, these institutions, these programs, these identities, these churches. And and I thought, oh, we're going to change the center of gravity. This is going to be beautiful. And it, we just, it, it didn't survive. Like the moment that we were able to start opening up again, everybody went, okay, back to what I know to be real. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what I meant to say when I share There were moments where I was like, and I, and I think I share that because I don't think those were the wrong lessons to learn. I don't think we learned them. I don't know if it's too late or if any of that even matters. I think the pandemic simply may be sped up something we've been in denial about like the church has been in survival mode for a long time that's a very general critical maybe unfair statement but we've just been trying to survive we've been in a post-christian world Mm -hmm. we're no longer the center of gravity Mm -hmm. like we've been trying to figure out how to make ourselves feel good and kind of be in denial about that the pandemic kind of maybe helped show that for what it is and kind of helped maybe helped some of the denial a little bit. And I'm just going to show my bias here. I'm a campus minister. I think the future, we're, we're just fine. I think Gen Z, Yeah. I, I think we're, we're going to have to rebuild a lot of things in this world, a lot. Faith in the church will be one of them. And Gen Z is going to be just fine. As long as we have enough of the rest of us there to help mentor them and encourage them, they won't be able to do it on their own. So they're not going to go build the new church on their own. We're gonna have to work together to do it, but but they're they they got this. Like they they're so innovative and just there are some things I see and I'm like let it die. Like I just I just don't care. I have not been disturbed by the amount of people in a church building on Sunday morning, Mm. and that's not because I think they didn't have real faith or I'm like this faith is not contained here. Mm. Like it, this is one of many places where faith is to be found. And I think we're going to have to figure out how to go find faith everywhere else. And that's how we're going to put the world back together. Because you don't put the world back together in a church building. The church building is a thing that reminds you that your job is to go put the world together. But it's not there. You go do that everywhere else. You go do it everywhere but the church building. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're going to be okay. I think all this is maybe an opportunity to remember all those things. Yeah. Anne's a big fan of Gen Z. Good. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm, so am I. Oh, yeah. I get to talk to them all day long. I give them all kinds of things to read. And I just say, I just want to know what you think. Like, I genuinely, what are you, what are you thinking about in there? And they're like, I don't know. I don't have thoughts yet. That's always how they start. And then inevitably they say something brilliant and gorgeous or thoughtful. And I'm like, yeah, we're going to yep. be fine. We're going to be fine. Y'all are 100%. Good. And the only thing that I get for, yeah, I've sat in those meetings too. And just went like, that is the most intelligent thing I have. And I'm, I sit in all kinds of meetings and all kinds of high level rooms. What I just heard from Gen Z was like some of the most intelligent, thoughtful stuff I've ever heard. And if I'm, and if I'm freaked out about anything, it's all of the stuff they have in their way mm. that I'm responsible for. That's mm. in the way of them pursuing any of what they just shared with me because there's so much they're going to have to navigate to even be heard or even get started on the things that they just brought. <laughs> I won't even get started on the last meeting I was in where I just, all, all I did, and I kept telling all the middle-aged people, like, I, I'm not kidding. I need you to be quiet. Yeah. I am only interested in hearing people that are under the age of 25 right now. So stop talking. And 
And I just heard these people talk about wealth and wealth management in the, in the decades to come and what that means for nonprofit work. I was just like, nobody, I, I lead a nonprofit. None of us are talking about these things. Mm-hmm. And they're so right. And if that's true on like a a dumb little hour meeting I had in Atlanta, how much more is that true in so many other levels and spaces? I'm so I'm so hopeful. But now I'm now I'm just ranting. So I'll, yeah, I'll be quiet. I like it. On the um the number of people in the building thing not being uh, the source of evidence for for hope or despair. Uh, when I was at Hebrew Union College, Marty, um, my professor, who was PhD and and ordained uh, in the rabbinate, told a story um, in American Jewish history, which is that there uh, Savannah has been historically a very important part of North American uh, Jewish, the kind of the hub around the Atlantic. But for but they went through a very serious drought, like human drought, for a long time, and there were these two men who met at the main synagogue in um, Savannah for a couple of decades, just the two of them. And they were older guys and they made each other a promise that every Sabbath they would show up unless, you know, somebody was sick and they would do this every Sabbath and meet together and study until the community returned. We can also just keep the flame burning, believing this isn't the end of the story. The story is never going to die with us. That's just not the the story that um, the Bible has told us. That's not the story that God has told us. But maybe our job is just that we're going to show up until something new blooms, and we're just going to keep it keep it going. And there have been some days where it's been quiet at at church where I go, well, we're just going to come, and and God will bring a harvest. I could not agree with that sentiment more. Uh, and I don't know how often we're told that in scripture. And it just, we hear it and we kind of categorize it. But we're told that the kingdom of God is a farmer who goes out and sows his seed and then goes to bed. And while he sleeps, the seeds grow and sprout. Like we're told that God prunes and he's the one that bears the fruit. And apart from him, like we're we're kind of told these things almost pretty repeatedly, especially in the New Testament, like God just really, one of my favorite stories. And there comes another story, Anne, sorry. Um, Ray told this story about a vineyard that he was in when he was over in, in I think it was, I think it was, I think it was in Israel for this one. And this, uh, this Arab vineyard owner comes in and, and he's got all of his students and they're kind of laying under the vines. It's a really hot, uh, hot day. And they see these little sandaled dark feet come walking into the vineyard. And all of a sudden this Arab head pokes down and they go, oh, it's the vineyard owner. And he's here and he's trying to talk to him, but Ray doesn't speak Arabic and he doesn't speak English. And they're trying to have a conversation and Ray just keeps saying, I hate the Tower of Babel. I hate the Tower of Babel. And so eventually this farmer, uh, he's cutting off grapes and handing grapes to all the students to eat. And it's this beautiful moment. And finally, the farmer takes a grape and he squishes the seeds out of the grape into his hand. And he says, man, count seed in grape. Only Allah count grape in seed. And I have loved that little parable. Mm -hmm. Like we can count the seeds in a grape, but only God knows how many grapes are in those seeds. And we are simply called to steward quality faithfulness, Mm -hmm. not quantitative production. 
Mm-hmm. It's the only thing we can control. We can literally, we are, we are under a facade. We lie to ourselves telling ourselves we can control quantitative production. Not with a kingdom metric, we can't. The only thing we have control of, this is very impact uh, definition of success language, but the only thing we have control over is our qualitative pursuit of God, our qualitative faithfulness. Mm-hmm. So I love the story of these two Jewish men, just qualitative faithfulness. We can't make Jews come back here. We can't. All we can do is steward the thing that God gave us to steward and trust that God's at work in places we could never even go. We just had a whole conversation, Marty, with our previous guest about capitalism in the church and how all of that has just infiltrated the more, more, more. What? Yeah. Capitalism in the church? (laughs) What? What is (laughs) that? Sorry. Um, We need to flip it upside down. (laughs) Shake it around. I'm shocked. I haven't Shock. seen this. Where is this happening? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. My favorite lines from Casablanca. I'm shocked. Shocked. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. No, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. We have a lot that hopefully we're learning. We, we've got a lot to learn still. Awesome. Well, I love a rabbinical parable, Marty, and I was going to ask you for another one if you have one, but I'm going to tell you one first. And I can't oh, remember. It's a very famous um, Eastern European rabbi whose name I can't pull off uh, the top of my head, but one of his students, I believe this is right before, right after the First World War, was accused of spying, I think, for the Russians. And he was called into court to testify, uh, be a character witness on behalf of one of his yeshiva students. And before he gets there, the, um, the bailiff turns to the judge and says, judge, this rabbi that's coming in to testify, he has a spotless reputation amongst Uh, the Jewish community in this area. He came home one evening and found his house being robbed. And he chased the robber down the street saying, I declare myself possessionless. So this man could not be prosecuted for the crime of burglaring him. And the judge turns to the bailiff and says, is this true? And the bailiff says, your honor, I don't know, but they don't tell those kind of stories about you and me. And the thought of this Mm. holding on to the things that are ours or we believe are ours versus letting go of them. And the rabbi doesn't know what they're going to do in the world. He doesn't know this man's circumstances. He could be, you know, a horrible drug dealer or he could be trying to feed his family, but he decides not to hold on to these things that could be considered his. Uh, I love these, the, the storytelling tradition and the Jewish tradition and how packageable and translatable it is, even when it's from this foreign time in this, this foreign world. Yeah, 100%. Oh, yeah, it's great. I do love that. I'm going to steal that from my trips. Good. Um, I got I, it from Joseph Telushkin's uh, book. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hillel, if not now, when? And I tell yeah. it to my students all the time. Okay, sweet. I even know what, to, what, what source to cite other than the great Dr. Katie Rainham. Let's see here. Uh, you wanted a story. I'll, I'll, I, w- I want to put one that's like more in the theme of what we're talking about, but I'm going to tell you my favorite one. And it's okay, probably good. like, it's probably like not even in the right, but it's still great. <laughs> we'll see if I can, we'll see if I can tell the story without crying. Um, the rabbi is getting together with his students as he does every morning and uh, telling them stories and teaching them about the words of God. And, and he's telling them on this particular morning about how God tells us to write the words of God on our hearts. And he's going through Shema and Deuteronomy. And God tells us to write 
the words of God on our hearts. It gets to the end of his lesson, and one of his students, his disciples, raises his hand and says, Rabbi, uh, why is it that God tells us to write the words on our hearts and not in our hearts? And the rabbi pauses for a moment and then looks up at the student and says, only Adonai can write his words in our hearts. Only Adonai has the power to do that. But he tells us to write the words on our hearts so that when our hearts break, his words fall inside. And I have always, always loved that story. <laughs> ah, well, we can't beat that. No. Mm. Crying for the third time. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, it's good. Should we let that be the final word, Anne? Yes. <laughs> She's swiping vigorously at her face. Well, it was fun. It was fun being with you guys today. This was fantastic. Yeah, that was great. We should do it again. We should. Oh, Uh, uh, from your lips to God's ears. Don't do that. Hey, somewhere around February, I'm going to be wanting to like get on all these podcasts and talk oh, about yeah. something that's going on. So when you can have me back then, we'll do a commercial. Oh, my God. Yay. Oh, we would love it, Marty. Thank you yeah. so, so much. I know that you had a, a full day and um, have not had your your supper yet. So we will release you into the world. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Thank you, Marty. Yep. Have Thank you, guys. Night. It was a wonderful time. Yep. Bye. Bye.